This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Helen Joyce, it's great to see you. Oh, lovely to see you again, Daniel. Welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience. I'm here with Helen Joyce, Britain editor of The Economist magazine and author of this book, this too. <laughs> <laughs> which just came out. And actually, I've, I already have spoken with Helen previously when this book was in the works or was it still embryonic? I forget. I don't I don't think that I'd got myself a publishing contract or written the full outline when we talked before, but, but I knew you were I was intending and you had this thing yeah. worked out. So this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the book. And um, um, so first of all, let's just let's um, get right into things. I mean, hey, how is the book doing? So the book's been out for how long? Here in the UK, it's been out since mid-July and it was early September it came out in the US. I actually don't have US figures, but in um, the UK, in the first six weeks and four of them, it was in the top 10 nonfiction. So that's pretty good for a first time author and someone who found it very hard to find an agent and then very hard to find a publisher and, yeah. and yeah, so on. Yeah. And, and once now that it's out in the US, how long before you see like New York Times figures? I really don't know, but I'll tell you, Daniel, it wasn't actually picked up by a U.S. publisher. So it's being distributed in the U.S. It's actually the U.K. edition. Um, so it was turned down by everybody. I'm very grateful to Simon and Schuster for distributing it, but okay. um, I didn't get a publishing contract. OK, gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so it may do very well, but it may not show up on lists because it's not a U.S. published book. Is that how these things I, work? I, I doubt that's how it works, but I mean, I'm not the, the person who'd know. It did get reviewed in the New York Times, which I'm really, really grateful because that kind of makes it seem perhaps possible for other people to review it as well. Yeah. And what kind of how have the reviews been? What has your impression been overall of the of the reviews so far? I mean, mostly really, really glowing, like people have really got it. And some people have said some things that I found touching and moving. I was very entertained by David Aronovich, a uh, uh, Times journalist, as in London Times, uh, who tweeted out with um, testicle haver gets off the fence. Women exist, <laughs> which made me laugh. And he wrote about how he had misunderstood and had misunderstood for years what was being talked about. And then the book explained to him what was being talked about and then made him examine his own um, misconceptions and why he had them. And basically, he said that he's always kind of assumed that any man who was willing to go through castration must be, you know, mean it so seriously that this person is in a way the most pitiable and, um, you know, really is someone who needs special consideration over everybody else. And then he discovered, which he had somehow missed, that really nearly no trans women actually go through genital right. surgery. So we're just talking about male people. Right. That's one of the major changes in the way this landscape looks that we'll talk yeah. about that's talked about in the book. Just the last thing about criticism, just because this discourse now is so uh, people, everyone's aware of this discourse. And so the last thing I want to ask is, have you had any negative criticisms that were you thought thoughtful and intelligent. In other words, oh, yeah, there's some sure. good pushback. Yeah. So Jesse Single reviewed it in the New York Times, and that was a great review. And he, I mean, he's so knowledgeable about this topic. Um, you know, he said I should have gone, I should have had an index. And the thing is, mm. you know, I, I look back and I think, like, why did I not have an index? And I think two reasons. One, it's the style I'm used to writing in the economist that you incorporate all the facts in the sentences that you're writing you know we don't do footnoting and we don't do links out like every article is meant to be freestanding gotcha 
But I don't think it really occurred to me that the reason we get away with that is because it's The Economist. Like, why are people meant to believe me as a freestanding person when it's not The Economist saying it? But also, I mean, the other reason was that it's meant to be a trade book. It's meant to be for a general audience. And that's not an audience that wants a lot of footnotes. So what I did instead was do uh, further reading for each chapter. And I think you can find pretty much anything that you need to in that. But, you know, that was a serious, you know, genuine criticism. Yeah. And then, of course, he and I are just in slightly different positions on this. He's nearer to me than he would be to the general, you know, left-wing idea that this is all great. But he and I are not in exactly the same positions. Yeah, the book is quite scrupulously researched, I mean, I have to say. And um, I think people, people who come to this debate with already with a very formed opinion might be surprised by how much of this book is devoted to background. I mean, to history, to when did, when did we start talking about this? How did people used to think about it versus where, how they think about it now? How did it evolve to that point? A fascinating chapter on the matrix, which I had no idea about. So maybe you could talk a little about, about what's the aim of the book. I mean, if the book was merely meant to be polemical, you wouldn't have almost half of it. Be yeah, that. it's not. It's so, not meant. So, to what's the idea? Why did you do all this deep dive? What is it you're so, trying to do with the book? So, my feeling was that from about 2015, this took off in popular culture, and you wouldn't have noticed if you were just a normie. Like, if you weren't on Twitter, you didn't have a kid who was in university, you weren't moving in left wing circles, you weren't too online, as we say, you probably wouldn't have noticed. I think it might might have been a bit earlier in the US than here. But around 2018, it seems to be everywhere, like everywhere. Everyone was writing about, you know, brave trans kids, stunning trans athletes, you know, and people are sort of, this this is something that's going on in the the corner of your eye while you're trying to live your life. And at some point you say to yourself, what is this about? So I wanted to write the one book that somebody who says to themselves, what the hell is this all about? Where did this come from? Why has it come out of seemingly nowhere? Why suddenly am I hearing things like sex assigned at birth? Like why is there what looks to me like a bloke competing in the women's weightlifting in the Olympics? Why, why, why? All these things that seem to have come from nowhere, of course, all have a century old history. And so you do have to tell that history. And I mean, you know, my first drafts were very much longer on that section. I must tell you about the Matrix chapter. That's a real love-hate one. That's the Marmite chapter. Um, what you know, chapter? Some people, Marmite, like, you know, this disgusting um, brown gunk that British people like. I'm not British. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, it's I know meant to be love-hate. Like, you either love it or you hate it. So people said to that about that chapter, oh, that was fascinating. I didn't know. And there's other people who went like, oh, God, I couldn't wade through that Matrix stuff. So. Um, no, what interests me is I had no idea that that was actually what The Matrix was about. I mean, I did, of course, know that the that the directors had transitioned, but I did not know. I thought the thing was a meditation on, you know, was sort of employing card, you know, Descartes and stuff like that to do an interesting take on sort of the William Gibson neuromancer, the whole cyberpunk thing. I know the stuff you're talking about, I didn't know about at all. And so it was very illuminating um, and interesting. And it also connected the topic to other things that I want to ask you about. Um, so you're saying that the ori- originally this this deep dive history was longer, was a larger portion of the book. Well, it wasn't a larger portion of the book. The book was longer. Gotcha. You know, it, it was very hard to slim things down, you know, to leave out so many fascinating things that I discovered. And my agent was very helpful there. But the first draft that I submitted was 20,000 words longer. Gotcha. And she was helpful both on trimming down and on reorganizing stuff and making and structuring it better. But yeah, there's this whole fascinating back history and the versions of it that you can find now on, you know, LGBT websites are extraordinarily slanted. Like, you know, actually discovering the quack medicine background of um, 
Benjamin, Harry Benjamin, was a big surprise to me. I mean, you can find the clippings, but it's not something that's talked about much. Yeah. Or just how, um, you know, I, I even left out some things like the guy who actually did the surgeries in Germany in the very first surgeries, the Lily Elba case. He went on to work for the Nazis and did um, you know, some horrendous experiments in, in concentration camps. It wasn't relevant to the story. I kept having to trim off these fascinating side yeah. avenues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people might be surprised if they knew how many major scientific and medical things advances or whether you view them as good advances or not were done by some very sketchy people right i mean it's yeah it's, yeah yeah for true in tr- sure. same thing in in physics and and you know uh, nuclear power and all this sort of stuff you know how many people know that how much of this came from like the nazi v1 and v2 rocket research and so it's really interesting stuff i mean you could just read this just the history part and it would be interesting um um how do you view the relationship between the history part and then the rest? So the rest, which is more pointed and addresses contemporary debates. How did you intend the, the history background to affect, inform people's approaching the contemporary debates? So I think it had to be there because people say, where did this come from? And there's also this repeated statement that you will hear in trans circles, there have always been trans people, trans people have always existed. And that's a really meaningless statement. It's as meaningless as saying that we have Fafa Fine here with us today in the UK and the US. I mean, this is this third gender from Samoa, you know, that we don't have any of them because it's entirely culturally specific. Right. So that was one reason. And then another reason is that the meaning of what it is to be trans has changed out of all recognition, but most people don't realize that. Like most people still imagine somebody like Christine Jorgensen, who you know, went through surgeries, went, right. you know, did their level best to look like a woman, right. as a person born male, um, and then you know, managed to get accepted socially as a woman by doing a pretty elaborate attempt to be taken as that. And that's not what's meant today. So you right. kind of need to, to have that history to understand what it is you thought you were talking about before I tell you this isn't what we're talking about now. Right. And the matrix is the pivot there. Right. Right. And so that's what I'm interested in. And I'm interested in, in, in that. I'm, I'm so, so maybe you can, you know, give us what you think is sort of a useful summary or, or enticement. You know, obviously you don't want to tell the whole book because you want people to read it, but sort of, um, you know, this histor- the historical stuff, the sort of the, the, the major groundwork done by doctors Blanchard, and I forget the name of the other doctor, that identified these two populations within the trans uh, population, the, the androphiles and then the autogenophiles. Autogynophiles. I'm sorry. Maybe you could also talk, maybe you could yeah. talk a little bit about those, and then we can talk about how did we get from there to the conception now which is so wildly different um and maybe that'll take us then through the um through the uh, matrix chapter i want to ask you about the relationship to transhumanism which i found fascinating also um so maybe i'll let you yeah do okay. this the way you want to do it so i don't think there have always been trans people because i don't think that makes sense but i do think there have always been the very occasional person who has felt very strongly that they weren't meant to be the sex that they actually are now we know that's very strongly related to being gay. Um, that's like a that's an empirical finding. People who are highly gender non-conforming are much much more likely to be gay because the most gender non-conforming thing you can do actually is to be same-sex attracted. 
So when you think of it that way, it's not that surprising that that same person finds, you know, the, the signs and signals and, and roles and so on of the opposite sex appealing. But also, of course, in many traditional societies, it's not acceptable to be same-sex attracted. And lots of traditional societies have found ways to deal with that. Only for men, by the way. Almost never for women. Because a woman who identifies as a man is identifying into privilege, and that's never allowed. Right. Uh, a, a man can identify out of privilege. He can lose his manhood. He can lose this, this special status that most traditional cultures give to manhood, in return for which he's allowed to act in gender non-conforming ways and asleep with men. So that's happened. That's happened around the place. And there's just been you know, individuals who have, for whatever reason, very strongly felt they're members of the opposite sex. Really rare. Super, super rare. One of those people was the Danish girl of the film in 2015 right. with Eddie Redmayne in. Which and you have a whole a, chapter on on this. Yeah. So I, I, I have a chapter that has three historical trans women in it, um, of whom Lily Elba is the first, Lily Elba being um, the, the name that this person took. And that's when the surgery started. And it was already apparent if you read these people's autobiographies and also what, what remains that the doctors have left behind, they didn't think about themselves the same ways the doctors did. So Lily Elba genuinely seems to have believed that there were two people living in this body. The whole book is about how I have a man and a woman, the woman inside, and that I need to kill the man so the woman can gain an existence. But the doctor thought that basically this is a very homosexual person who can't live happily unless I allow them to transition. And the, the doctors that Lily Elba fell in with also um, had a rather, well, it was the conception at the time of what it meant to be gay. They thought of gay people as a type of intersex. So they were fascinated by people whose bodies seemed to have um, aspects of both male and female. Now, I mean, science has gone on so far since then and it's not it's often lots of people don't like being called intersex anymore there are no people who are in between male and female it's, it's that's a right that's a mistaken understanding of what we're yeah 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 there are conditions called differences or disorders of, of sex development where you know a person who is male can have aspects of being female or vice versa right, right. anyway so they thought that these people were like somewhere in between male and female and they imagined that there were hermaphrodites which there aren't right humans can't be hermaphrodites meaning right. that they have both sex organs of both um but they imagined gay people to be what they called psychic hermaphrodites they thought that a gay man was a man with a woman's brain and then they discovered that there were people who weren't necessarily gay or maybe were but they're big difference was they thought they were meant to be women they felt like women they wanted to cross dress and so on and they thought of those as a different sort of psychic hermaphrodite and they, they coined the word transvestism and then later transsexualism for those sorts of people and it didn't seem to be very easy to persuade them that they were wrong these people that they were actually men and of course in very rigid sex world culture if they can't just say oh well I'm going to cross dress at the weekend and you know, my boyfriend doesn't mind sort of thing. So instead, they felt the kindest thing to do was to help them to physically transition as best they could and try and slot them back into society as women. And if you sort of fast forward a bit, you then pick up another sort of idea of what it means to be a man or a woman. And this is most closely associated with a doctor called John Money, an American doctor, sort of 1960s, 70s. And he believed that... Um, what made people men or women was the sex roles that they fitted into when they were small. He believed, he believed some version of the blank slate theory that every child was born capable of slotting into the male role or the female role. It had to be done before about two and a half. But if it was done then... When was this? Could you just say the years? Late 1960s, early 1970s, if I remember correctly. I mean, I can look it up. But, no, 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 um, no, no. I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm roughly it's is around what I was then, Roughly, at. yeah, it's around then. And so he 
he believed that um i don't know why he thought we had to fit into sex roles it was that mutable but that sounds like an early version of the genderizing of sex right Yes. So he believes that that was the real thing, that there were there were bodies, obviously. He, he knew that people had sexes, but like, what made you grow up to be a girl and then a woman or what made you grow up to be a boy or then a man was the social role that your upbringing fitted you for. And he was a very traditional sort of person. Like he believed that boys learned to be outgoing, manly, thoughtful, brave, you know, to act in the world. And girls learned to be subservient, domestic, decorative, obedient to their husbands and so on. And he, he's most famous now for the experiments that he did on children with um, deformed genitals, for example, after a cert, after accidents yes. or surgery that went yes. wrong, or intersex kids. And he told the parents that they should castrate their little boys with their little boys with micro penises and tell those little boys they were little girls and give them hormones when they hit teen years. And I mean, you know, for about 15 years, he claimed that this was all going beautifully and then turned out that it was all a lie. And those children knew very well what sex they were somehow. And but see, if you sort of take those two theories together, that what makes you a man or a woman is your upbringing, your social role, and that what makes you a man or a woman, as, as the early patients, not the early doctors thought, was what you felt, you end up with a sort of a theory of, of gender as a sort of almost free-floating aspect of people, as an identity. And those people are transgender if the gender that they feel, that they act, that they want to live in, isn't the gender that's associated with their sex. And we've now seen sort of 50 years from the, the merging of those two strains of thought to arrive at a point um, via Judith Butler, you know, via queer theory on campus, uh, via the rise of identitarian politics on the left and so on, where we no longer think about the sort of the material reality of sexed bodies and the fact that we are mammals very closely related to other primates. Uh, you know, I mean, it's 210 million years, I think, is the best estimate of how long there have been, um, there has been sex, biological sex on this planet. And, you know, males can't become females in any mammals. So, 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 you know, all of that was the sort of underpinning of the belief that you needed to think about male and female as distinct things if you wanted to give women space in the world and we've moved over here to a theory that's that's identitarian that's it's what you say you are it's an inner feeling it's it's how it's this i identify as like people say i identify as irish or i identify as you know black or I identify as disabled or you identify as transgender pangender by you know bisexual whatever you've you've you've, you've identified if that's a proper word in this context yeah something that was a material reality and is now a political identity. The reason I asked about the dates was because it sounds to me though, like the basic ingredients of the kind of gender replacing sex as the way to distinguish men from women predates the, the, the Butler stuff. I mean, it, big it's time, big time. That was a big surprise to me. I hadn't known that. So it turns out that if you are one of these rare people who feels very strongly that you are or were meant to be a member of the opposite sex, you will explain it to yourself in strikingly similar ways. You land on the same explanations of what's happened. You land on some idea that, I mean, I can only say a sexed soul, that people come with sexed souls, that you are actually like people, it depends on, on the metaphor in your culture. Are you going to say that you have a pink brain and a blue body? You know, it, it's like it's like people just land without knowing each other on the same explanation for what's happened to them. Now, the doctors weren't thinking this way at all. So if you look, 
you know, they thought, okay, maybe there's a psychic hermaphroditism, but they, 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 they thought, they thought that you were some sort of intersex person, maybe. And of course their patients glommed onto that because if man and woman are a spectrum, then you can more easily imagine moving along it, you know, by changing things. But if they're really separate populations, it's hard to imagine how you would move between them. But the doctors were thinking about distressed people that they saw in front of them and thinking, what can I do to make this person less distressed? And the, the choices they made, I think, were partly shaped by the fact that they were talking about incredibly tiny numbers, like a few dozen in a country the size of Canada a year. So in a way, you could treat them like witness protection. Like, you don't have to think too hard about witness protection. Like, you know, what are, you, what are we doing here? We're giving somebody different documents. We're allowing them to invent an entire history. You know, like, hardly anyone, and we have good reason for doing it. So, so it was that sort of mindset that, you know, you didn't have to think too hard about this. And... Also, I have to say, I really think it shows that they were all men and they were looking at men that they thought would fit in better as women and not thinking about what this meant to women. Like um, someone I like and admire very much is Michael Bailey, um, who wrote the book, The Man Who Would Be Queen in 2003 and has endured nearly two decades of harassment from trans activists You write about since. that in the book, yeah. Yeah, so he's the person who popularized, he is, a, he is an academic sexologist, but he popularized this, this theory that um, men, male people who identify as women, largely fall into two categories. There's the gay ones who, you know, are so hyper, super effeminate that actually life is just easier for them if they fit themselves in as women. Or the straight ones who have an unusual and complex sexuality in which the object of their affections is largely a vision of themselves as a woman. So right. they love the woman inside. They, they, you know, if you so that's a difference nicely, between the androphile and the and they go, um, the the autogynophile. Right. Yeah. So androphile is just a word that means fancies men. So I'm gotcha. androphile as gotcha. a straight woman. Yeah. So, so it's you'd meant expect, to be a word. You'd expect the first group to shrink as male homosexuality becomes more and more publicly acceptable and publicly livable, right? Um, is uh, that the well, case? with a wrinkle, with a wrinkle, which is that those are the kids including the ones who grew up to be happy gay men who were often highly, highly, I mean, I hate this word effeminate. I, I've come to think of it. No, no, as I understand very, what you mean. Though, but yeah, but I, I think of it now as a variant masculinity. I understand. Like, you know, 97% of, of men are sort of ordinarily masculine and 3% of them are differently masculine. They're not actually very like women. No, no, girls. no. Yeah, I agree with that. You know I, what I mean? I used it's to work different. in the theater, so I was around a lot of yeah. those sorts of people, and I, I know exactly. But I think that's an easy mistake to make and is one that one can make without being prejudiced or Yes, absolutely. Horrible. You reach for a word and you yeah. say, oh, it's feminine yeah. or it's yeah. feminist. But actually, if you look closely, it's not it's not very like women. Yeah. So, the reason I mean, I'm I asking talked... is because I sometimes wonder, you know, part of while I was reading the history part of this, I thought to myself, you know, if the state of clinical therapeutic psychology had been much better in the 1950s, maybe, I wonder how many, whether the trans thing ever would have taken off in the way that it did. In other words, I almost kind of wonder whether, so because the, the notion that one would perform invasive surgeries on perfectly healthy organs and tissues because of psychic distress, mm. In other words, the, the obvious question that arises is, well, that sounds to me like what you need is some really good psychotherapy. I mean, the last thing you yeah, need to it, do is amputate they, yeah. parts of yourself, right? I mean, um, the, early, the early patients just didn't seem to be very amenable to it. But the psychotherapy was primitive and then yeah. and based on terrible theories, right? I don't I disagree, mean, but I don't think it's brilliant now either. So, gotcha. so yep. I okay. mean, you asked, would it become less common 
as it became less stigmatized to be gay. Unfortunately, people like that are often quite, quite effeminate, if that's the word we're going to use in early youth. So they're the little boys who are now being told they're trans girls. Gotcha. So actually it's becoming much more common again. And, we've, we're, and we're transitioning little kids. So a section of the book is about that. And that's the reason I wrote the book because uh, you know all unwittingly, all sorts of liberal, well-meaning people are backing a huge medical scandal, which right. is the, the, the sterilization yeah. of, and permanent medicalization of gender non-performing kids. They don't think that's what they're doing, but it is what they're doing. And I don't think people understand just how big a scandal it is going to be once the lawsuits start. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't even know if there are going to be enough lawsuits. You know, that's how you fix everything in America. But since your last big attack of lawsuits um, driven by... Um, you know, a theory about how minds work, which is the 1990s with recovered memory syndrome. And, um, you know, that ended in the satanic panic and so on. That was ended by lawsuits. Um, there were some very big payouts. The insurers stopped covering the sort of treatment that was persuading people that they had, you know, they've been abused horrifically as children, that they had multiple personalities and so on. Right. You know, by the way, some people are horrifically abused as children. Right. I'm talking about crazy, you know, insane satanic cults trafficking right. children around right. the US and things absolutely invented in fragile people's minds by therapists anyway that ended with lawsuits but since then the the pharmacological lobby the pharmaceutical lobby has managed to really you know limit some um, statutes of limitations um get a lot more attention paid to the industry standards in deciding what you do and also um, limit payouts so it's going to be a lot harder to stop this one with lawsuits you don't afraid. think that because there's going to be a time lag right so let's say in 10 years when the 30 year old now realizes what a terrible mistake they made and there start you start to get start seeing some really horrific images of surgeries and all these sorts of things. I just feel like it would change. It would turn public opinion against it. You don't think so? Maybe, but it started already. I mean, there are people in their thirties who've been through this who regret and have come out the other side. And I mean, I know plenty of people who have taken advice from lawyers and have been told you're going to get nowhere. The statute of limitation is passed. You signed saying that they knew what you were mm. doing. Gotcha. Uh, your parents signed, and also um, they're absolutely the most loathed and despised and attacked people that I've ever seen are detransitioners. They are treated like apostates because they are the people who are most dangerous to this, this belief system. For the reasons I we're, we're talking about is that that's yeah. the one thing that could bring this whole thing down is yeah. a really also, high profile, disturbing case that captures the imagination. And I wonder though, Daniel, I mean, you know, you guys in America have been watching since this child was six. You've been watching Jazz Jennings, and I think Jazz is yes. 20 now. That's You've been watching 14 years. That's 14 what I was thinking years. of. It's a circus. And the most disturbing things have been said in that program. They've discussed dilating Jazz's neo-vagina. They had threw a penis party when Jazz was taken to get castrated. You know, I mean, so what? What's left? What's left to horrify people? I actually, I'm actually very um, negative about that. Yeah. Fair I'm enough. sort of aware that we haven't actually said what we're talking about. Do you realize that we haven't said what this belief system that the whole book is about? I mean, I start. Well, I was hoping words. you were going to get to that. I mean, so, so, <laughs> so, well, the thing is, is that the, because it, the conception changed. Yes. What I'm interested in partly is how, like how, and your story about how it changed is what's, is what's so fascinating. Right. So maybe we right. could talk about that now. So we have some background. Yes. Yeah. Nice old quaint idea that there are these two populations it's it's rare. It's, you know, resistant to psychotherapeutic treatment. How did it turn into this self-identification? No surgeries or even, even physical trend, 
traditions of any kind, full beards and all this kind of thing. It shifted over to where now it seems to be mostly girls who are doing it, at least at adolescence. So maybe now talk about the fulcrum. Right. Where did it go from yeah. what we were talking about before to where it is now? So I suppose the patients always thought that it should be where it is now, because, you know, like I say, they land on the same explanation for what they are, that they're really women. And I haven't mentioned the fact that there are female people who've, who've insisted that they were male, but actually they were they, they looked very different. They were basically, you know, hyper butch lesbians like people who just couldn't fit into the world as women and who seemed to be actually quite happy and, and much less uh, much less prone to being deluded, by the way. Like they actually knew what they were doing. They knew that they were women living as men. Gotcha. Um, and, and, you know, they seemed to be quite happy and often didn't need much in the way of surgery. It was mostly about binding your breasts or getting mastectomy and maybe taking some testosterone to lower your voice. Although there are people who did neither of that and passed quite successfully. Sure. So... So it was mostly about, it was mostly men, as in male people who wish to live as women who were making all the running. I think it's a power, it, it's a testimony to the power of really, really, really determined people to move a whole culture step by step over a long enough time. So I, the first documents that I found stating what I now call gender identity ideology, which is just, just the simple idea that what makes you a man or a woman isn't your body that you were conceived male or female, it's just what you say you are. It's what you say you feel like, and it's what you say you are. So it's that simple. The whole book is about that. It's about that idea. That's what those people always thought. Nobody else agreed with them, but they kept going for, you know, really nigh on a century, as soon as there was any sort of medicine that could help to, to give any sort of form to this. But really in more detail, I would say from the 1990s, that's when the first little groups of lawyers, the early 1990s, late 1980s, that groups of lawyers, transgender lawyers, got together and wrote things like Transgender Bill of Rights. And those rights would just have seemed insane at the time. It was things like, um, you know, access to gendered spaces without regard to sex assigned at birth, by which they mean being allowed into women's spaces, even though you're a man, and vice versa. Um, I mean, that was just, these are just little fringe grouplets. And yet, a sort of succession of things that happened, I think the identification, the identitarianism on the left, like this, this, this sort of very strong progress narrative. So we've come to believe that the way progress happens is it progresses through marginalized groups one after the other and brings them in from the fold. And to some extent that's true. I mean, you know, women gained full human rights. Black people gained full human rights. Gay people blamed, gained full human rights. Well, what was the next group? It was trans people. And they were this ready and waiting to say what it meant for them to have full human rights. And so that's another of the disjuncts between, you know, what ordinary people think and what the lobbyists are saying. Like the first one is, you know, ordinary people think they mean people who've had surgery. So, okay, they don't think that people can change sex, but they think like the guy's had his dick cut off. It can't be that bad to let him into the women's changing room. But actually, the lobbyists don't think that at all. They don't think surgery has anything to do with it. They just think it's self-declaration. Right, right, right. And then the next one I would say is that ordinary people think when you say trans rights, that what you mean is not getting beaten up and spat out on the street, not having people sack you because you want to come in dressed in clothing. Housing. Yeah, like, you know, being, being, being granted your full human dignity. But actually what the lobbyists mean is being treated as the sex you say you are. And as soon as you think of it that way, you realize what well, other people have rights at play when you look at somebody's sex, because you can't have, I, I mean, I can't believe I have to say this. So many of the things that I have to say in this book, I just can't believe I have to say them. It is not possible to have single sex spaces if members of the opposite sex can enter. Like that's not even, that's just A implies A, right? So, so that's, you know, that's, that's not even 
even a bit of logic. It's just a basic statement. So if male people can come in, it's not for females only. But we've got to a place where if the male says he's female, he's allowed in. I was shocked when I actually went to the bother of reading in detail the things that were written on this subject um, towards the end of Obama's second term, because, I mean, Orwellian doesn't begin to describe it. They are full-blown, double-think, newspeak bullshit. So are these amazing sentences that say things like, um, a person transitions when they assert the, the sex that I, uh, the sex, a person transitions when they assert the sex that I, that um, cons- corresponds with their gender rather than the sex they were assigned at birth. So that's the word sex used twice in the same sentence in two completely different ways. You can't assert the sex that corresponds to your gender. I mean, what does that mean? So the word male and female in these um, edicts that were sent out towards the end of Obama's second term to, you know, housing, schools, universities, prisons, all of these things said that in Title VII and Title IX, which is, you know, are the two civil rights acts that, most, that, that have most um, bearing on women's rights, specifically in sports and in education um, and in employment, in those to say that somebody is male or female is to say that they are what they say they are. So now suddenly at a swoop, you've got sports or prisons or dormitories or housing shelters or rape crisis centers or single sex schools that were set up under Title IX for women to become equal, now have to admit men. And this is the new speak sort of double think Orwellian bit of it, always did have to, but we were just so stupid, we didn't know. The people who say they're female always were female. Right. But that's what the word female always meant. Right. Right. Well, look, I mean, I always try to steal man when I, when I talk about things, I I mean, I mean, a lot of this is sort of the stupidest version of it. It could be, but I'm, I'm wondering, (laughs) I'm wondering because the book really is care is very painstaking in tracing the evolution of the concepts and the ideas. So I guess what I want to know is, and and maybe we can talk about the matrix bit for a minute. Yeah. It does seem to me that there is a, that there's a kind of difference between the way this was thought about before in the, is it Bailey, the Bailey model, um, yeah, I think Blanchard probably. Blanchard, Blanchard model. And yeah. the way it is thought about now, and it seems to me now the most aggressive, ascendant, hip is the non-binary, the agender. In other words, it's it seems to be much less about I want to be the opposite sex and now much more about completely just unmooring yeah. or just ignoring sex altogether. So I'm interested to know how we got from A to B. And I thought that the, the matrix chapter and the relation to transhumanism speaks to that a little bit, which I would hope I was going to hope you would talk about. But then the second thing is this difference between the two conceptions of civil rights, right? All the traditional civil rights movements were always about material reality, right? The color of a person's skin, the, 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 the reproductive, uh, 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 capacity, uh, yeah. right? That capacity that one has, and having those not be the cause of social deficit, right? Now it's about not necessarily any material deprivation or so, but it's more about that others should affirm what you say you are. So I'm interested in in the best version of the arguments of how we got from A to B, because the terrible ones are very easy to identify. Yeah. The, the good ones, I think it's worth sort of talking through, or at least the ones that aren't completely insane are worth talking through um, just for the sake of, of, of looking at this critically. So how did we get from the Blanchard model to this, this non-binary agender 
world that we're in now? So I think as soon as you unmoor yourself from material reality, there is no stopping place. You go the whole way, you slide the whole way. It'd be a bit like trying to say, you know, I want to keep all of mathematics, but in this one formula, I'm going to have zero equal one. And I don't want that to ripple through to anything else. But the thing is, if you just have zero equal one in one place, the whole of mathematics is affected because you can put that in everywhere else. So I think without intending to, the early doctors were, I mean, and this is what doctors do. Doctors look at the person in front of them and they think, what does this person need? They're not paid. It's not their job to think about the effect on all of society. But what they were doing had an effect on all of society all the same. So they were seeing a man in front of them who said convincingly that he had felt either since his teens or even earlier than that, he'd always felt that he was a woman. He was suicidal because his body was so unpleasant to him. You know, sometimes these were people who had even tried, you know, self-harm to try to sort themselves out. And they think this man would be much happier if he was a woman. And the early gender doctors, as in not the very early ones, but the sort of the 1980s and 1990s, did try to make sure that their patients understood that they weren't actually changing sex. There's a clinic here in the UK, the big clinic, none of them big, but the biggest of the clinics used to get people to sign a disclaimer saying, I know that I'm not changing sex. I know I'm still a man. Even after the surgery, you cannot change sex. But, you know, think about the way that this interacts then with human rights law. So you've you've sterilised somebody because that's what happens when you do sex change surgery. And you've made that a condition for something, namely changing their birth certificate, which is a legal fiction. And then that person comes back and finds themselves a clever human rights lawyer and says, you have made something that's mine by right to change my birth certificate because of my, you know, my gender dysphoria, my distress. You have made that conditional on me getting sterilized. Nothing, no, nothing should be conditional on a human being being sterilized. So they got that taken away. Well, if you're not going to get sterilized now, we really have become unmoored. So the first law in the the world that allowed people to change their legal sex and get a a new falsified birth certificate was in 2004 here in Britain, the Gender Recognition Act. And I know because I talked to people who were there at the time, um, it wasn't really understood by the people in Whitehall and in Westminster, like the civil servants and the politicians, what they were allowing to happen. They thought they were just you know, just making life a bit easier for a few thousand very miserable people. But actually what was happening was they were being advised by people who had already been thinking, you know, for 15, 20 years at this point about an end goal, which was to dematerialize sex. And they've written about this since. This isn't me inventing it. I can point to the paper. Yeah, this has been revealed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so they say, you know, what the Gender Recognition Act did was it, it made gender the thing that made you a male or a female meaning what you say you are, and it, it dematerialized and put in, in, on the back burner sex. And then there's this thing that happens in international human rights and uh, law, lobbying and you know, the NGO world where they seize on an example and they try and lever that to make things happen elsewhere. And then somebody finally gets something through. I mean, Ireland was in 2015. And I mean, I know for sure they were lobbying in lots of places, but Ireland was the place that bit. And then they use that everywhere else. And in the end, it's this ratchet effect where all the change goes one way and nothing goes back. So what you can end up with is something that not many people wanted. And that's not actually what anyone thought they were getting at the beginning, except a few very determined lobbyists. And, you know, things that have happened along the way, again, the ways that the um, that the left wing politics changed and um, campuses changed a lot. Lots more people doing subjects, you know, women's studies changed into gender studies and so on. And then this this sort of this 1990s, 2000s American 
version of 1960s postmodernist ideas. And I mean, I, you know, I'm not a specialist in, in philosophy and frankly, I lose the will to live at this point, but I, mean, I don't think they're using the ideas from the 1960s in anything remotely like the way they were meant to be originally. But what they've ended up with is a sort of, you know, a, a situation where anything that's transgressive is good, anything that's normative is bad, anything that you can turn over and say it's the opposite of what you thought it was is good, um, that you break that 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 you get liberation by breaking down categories, you know that to liberate women, what you have to do is to blur the difference between men and women, as opposed to saying, well, we're distinct groups. So what do those two distinct groups need to compete and live and you know love and have, be happy on an equal footing? You try to pretend they aren't distinct groups, and it's a very general mindset. And at the moment, it's focused extremely closely on sex, gender, sexuality, those things. But it's a more general sort of interpenetrating of everything, everything yeah. being clever, clever, everything being words, discourse being the thing that brings reality into existence. You know, that you become liberated by speaking your new reality into existence and then job done. Martha Nussbaum wrote about this already in the 1990s when she was talking about American feminism. And she said something more insidious than provincialism or parochialism has come to the American Academy. And it's the turning away from the material side of life yeah. and a focus almost exclusively on clever discourse. Yeah, that devastating piece you wrote on Judith Butler. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And I'm going to link to, I'm gonna link to that. I'm going to link to a bunch of these things in the, in the, in the, so space that was below. prescient. And I think that was a really, that was a sign of things to come that now the way that you do feminism is by saying smart arse things about men and women. And there's, there's always this pattern. Like, I, I mean, I have a PhD in mathematics, not philosophy, but I spent some time trying to work out how this flipping of binaries works. And it always works by saying that the subordinate member of the binary is actually contains the dominant member of the binary. So you, you start by saying, you know, um, uh, you know, speech came first and writing is secondary. Then you redefine writing to be any sequence of, of uh, signs. And then you say, well, speech is actually a sequence of signs. Therefore, writing is the dominant member and speech is the subordinate one. I mean, this is just childish in my opinion, but anyway, it seems to fool a lot of people and they're all the same. So you end up with, um, you know, I, I got shivers when I realized to what extent people who aren't talked about this way, but how much they owe to that sort of philosophizing. I don't even think it's philosophy. I think it's philosophizing. I mean, they know it because they know what they're doing, but I think that people generally don't. And I'm thinking of Andrea Long Chu here, who's an American Asian trans woman who has written a book called Females a Concern. And it says things like everybody is female and everybody yeah, hates yeah, it. Yeah. So that's redefining female. Female is the universal sex defined by subjugation. The definition of a female is somebody with um, a gaping asshole and blank, blank uh. eyes. I know, I know. I couldn't Sorry. even read. I couldn't even read. Yeah, I mean, this I is read my sex. In... That sh this, this is my sex that this male person is talking about. So, but this is classic deconstruction and you know the flipping of the binary. It's redefining the word female to mean something that a male can be. Why this is meant to be clever is a mystery to me, Daniel. You're the philosopher. Um, but anyway, it seems to have been something that people have been doing for about thirty years, and 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 regarding themselves as in some way yeah. special and clever for doing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm interested in. Um the the transhumanism connection the online connection yes. because the more and more we, you know i'm thinking about this i'm starting to think that really the current coalition 
includes a bunch of disparate subgroups that really don't have very much to do to each other with, but I've decided yeah. somebody to band together. So, I mean, you know, one of the things in the book that's so fascinating in the, in the matrix chapter, which is definitely not Marmite for me, I thought it was one of the best things in the book because it opened this part up is that living online video games, the sort of the huge um, shift to online engagements has sort of gotten people used to the idea of a kind of a radical self-making, right? Yes, you're um, an avatar. You can choose right, your avatar. Which has nothing to do with what you actually are. And because you spend more and more time in that space, that becomes more and more to seem what's real and the rest seems to sort of recede. And of course, the matrix analogy is obvious. So what I wondered is whether, you know, what's really happening now is you basically have a bunch of people who would have been in the past would have been club kids, goths, all kinds of other sorts of things who are now jumping on this self-making bandwagon and just connecting it to the to, to the trans stuff, which previously was this very specific population of people that had these very specific ideologies, right? And somehow they've gotten all put together into a big coalition. But if you actually start looking at it, there really isn't very much relationship between some non-binary 17-year-old who would have been a club kid when I was in high school and some 50-year-old, you know, male person who, you know, had had cross-sex surgery, you know, and there's almost nothing, no relationship <laughs> between. So... Yeah. How did they wind up in a coalition together? Well, that's the power of naming, isn't it? This is when naming does create reality. It's like the LGBT coalition. What on earth does somebody who wants to sleep with someone of the same sex have to do with a man whose you know, fondest sexual fantasy is of himself turned into a woman? I mean, there's just they just have very little in common at all. I suppose you could say, well, they're gender non-conforming and there's not nothing to that. But I mean, they're not they're not a very well-defined group. And you're quite right, the, the, trans, the, the trans heading, I mean, you know, what does a hyper-feminine gay man who was brought up in a very religious family, profoundly self-loathed the idea that he could be gay, you know, for whatever reason, by the time he was an adult, it just became much easier to imagine himself as a woman. I know people like this, have to do with a hard-charging heterosexual man who got married, has kids, was in the army, and in his 50s decided to live his deepest, dearest fantasy, namely to present as a woman full-time. What do these people have to do with a lesbian, depressed 16-year-old, or indeed a heterosexual or bisexual or confused 16-year-old girl who's self-harming, hates her breasts, doesn't like the porn that she sees online, wants not to have, you know, grown men ogling her, etc., etc. These groups have nothing in common, except that they're swooshed into this ideology that you are what you say you are, and that what you, what you are is in some way to do with your sex. That's the strange bit of it, that it's settled on yeah. your sex and not your race. You're not really meant to identify your race, yourself, not meant to self-identify your race. So it's all about your sex and your, and to some extent your sexuality. So I think it must be because sex is so deep and so profound to us, like it's far more important than race. Obviously yes. race matters socially because terrible things have happened no, to people it, because of their race. Sex is way down. It's yeah, sex is basic. right inside you. Yeah, so yeah. if you feel profoundly wrong about yourself, like really profoundly wrong for reasons that we would have seen you become anorexic or self-harming or taken drugs or, you know, become an alcoholic or something yeah. in the past. Now it's interpreted as to do with your sex. And we know this, we know that mental health syndromes are created by diagnosis to a large extent. Yeah. You know, when you go to see the doctor with symptoms that are, you know, 
distress that is not from an obvious physical cause, like you haven't broken your arm, you don't have MS, you know, you and the doctor together shape those symptoms into a diagnosis and it has to be a recognizable diagnosis. And they vary hugely around the world. So the way that a person experiences depression in one place is very different from the way they experience it in another. And then there are these special diseases that only exist in one culture or another. It's my contention that transsexuality or transgenderism, as it's experienced now by these new cohorts of teenage kids, is an American uh, culture-bound syndrome. That's what these, these, that's what these mental health conditions that are specific to particular cultures are called culture-bound syndromes. This is an American culture-bound syndrome, and unfortunately, you're exporting it because of your cultural Can you dominance. Say again, very clearly, what is this? What is the Americans? specific yeah. syndrome that's being exported and what this, makes this, it American? This, what makes it so, American? Well, it just started in America. Yeah. Like this came from American in, in the 1990s and 2000s. If you go to your doctor and you say, you know, I don't feel right. There's something wrong with me. I've always been misunderstood. I misunderstand myself. I feel wrong about my body. My body feels wrong to me. In any other culture and time, nobody would have said, ah, you're probably of the opposite sex inside. Because that's a crazy thing to say. But it's now such a powerful narrative that you don't even need to go to the doctor to get it. That's another thing, of course. It's not just that we all live online. It's that ideas are spread online. So a child who, as many, many children do at 12, 13, 14, feels profoundly wrong about themselves. You go and you type, like, why do I feel so terrible? Why do I feel different from everybody else? Loads of people feel like that. It might just be ordinary teenage angst, but, you know, you might actually be on the autistic spectrum, you know, loads of things. You might have been, you know, you might have been abused as a child, and this is why you've dissociated from your body. Loads of reasons. But anyway, the answer you will find is you might be trans. And the advice you'll be given is to meditate on your gender, to think about it all the time, like all the time. Like there's no better advice for making somebody uh, mentally distressed than to get them to ruminate about what they're mentally distressed about. It's the opposite of CBT. It's the opposite of what's wise. Oh, advice. I understand. Do you yeah. think it started? You think it's just an accident? that it's American or do you think it has something to do with the way American healthcare is delivered? I think that it's not an, it's not an accident. It's a bunch of reasons. Um, I think your healthcare absolutely doesn't help because it's so, it's so procedure driven. Like you make money from each procedure that you do, but I think it goes back further than that to American specific ideas of, you know, admiring the self-made person. Self-determination, like the self-made yeah. man. Yeah. And, and yep. that anyone can be anything like, I mean, I don't think when people said those things yeah. first, they really thought you could be a member of the opposite sex, but you can see no, the extension into that. Absolutely. And absolutely. also conquering the, you know, the, a, a lot of the men who insist that they're women strike me as quite colonizing in their mindset and approach. It's the next thing to conquer. Like they seem to think they're better women than women are. And, and they'll even say so, you know. And, and, I, and that's the only explanation I can give for the number of them who do things like go into sports. Now, I come from a very sporty family and I have um, siblings, both male and female, who are, you know, at international standard cricket, in fact. And so I know a lot of people who play sports at a very high level. Um, and universally, the men say that it will be extremely embarrassing for a male person to enter a female competition because it'd be so easy to win. It's ridiculous. Like you'd feel like an idiot. Like you wouldn't feel good on the podium. You'd just feel like a fraud. And yet there are these male people who are entering competitions and you look at them and they have the light of, of fulfillment in their eyes. Yeah. Like they think they're the best women. It's actually quite devastating to look at. I, I find when I watch 
you know, the antics of someone like our like a Rachel McKinnon or whatever her name yeah. is now. Ivy, Ivy something. Uh, other than Ivy. my feeling even worse for the poor people that that are getting displaced from races and, and competitions and things like that because of this person. On, on the other hand, when I see the kind of brazen confidence, it actually makes me feel really devastated because I see such a broken human being that I don't yeah, even understand. See, yeah. I, I, I don't even understand how I can't imagine how tormented. But she's like, got to know at some level, right? When she's t- hulking over the person standing. But I, but I think McKinnon thinks that McKinnon is the best sort of woman, that there are small, squishy, weak women and there are big, strong, you know, brilliant women like McKinnon. I mean, you asked about the connection with transhumanism. Yeah. I think about a lot of these ideas, there's no natural stopping point for them. They're like universal acid in that. You know, once you start to think that you can be something that you just fundamentally aren't, yeah. like really fundamentally aren't, why would you stop at sex? Yeah. Why it's would you say that that's the only thing? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and also it's absolutely essential to this ideology that you treat bodies as easily changed and easily remade and easily re-altered, which by the way, is one of the reasons that mothers are the people who are more resistant to this because you know, a mother makes, know it, makes a body. Yeah, we make a body in pain and grief over nine months and then we expel it with some consideration. Yeah, I've watched it. I know very well. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so tough. So, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not easy to sell a woman who has just given birth the idea that human bodies are inconsequential and easily made and remade. Damn straight. So, I mean, of course, there are some who do, and I wonder about those women, but anyway. Um, so, but it's presented to children in particular and teenagers as very easy and something that's very successful. Yeah. So I've seen some very distressing videos of um, consultations in which little children, I mean like six, seven, eight, and these will be kids who are just classic little gay boys. Like really, they are just going to be gay. I know the type and everyone knew the type before all this bullshit came along. And they're going to gender clinics and they're being told they're really little girls. And these little boys think that the doctor can make them into a little girl, like really make them into a little girl. They don't think that they're getting a simulacrum. They don't think they're getting second best. And they're talking about, you know, like there was one I saw where this poor little boy was explaining at one of his um, his consultations that he had he really badly wanted to be a mother and that he'd worked out he'd have to go to Sweden to get a, a womb transplant. And he said he didn't, he understood that he wasn't going to be able to give birth the normal way. He'd have to have a cesarean. And nobody in the room, this was for a bloody documentary, a BBC documentary, nobody in the room said, sweetheart, let's stop you right there. They let this poor child continue with his understanding that the grown-ups were telling him the truth, that they could turn him into a girl. And the teenagers that I've talked to, they're a bit more sophisticated. They know, sort of, that you can't really change sex, but they've often never had an operation of any sort, and they've often never been ill. They don't understand what's going to be done to them. So one of the, 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 um, the, the, the detransitioners I profiled, a very distressing case, and in fact, the case that made me want to write the book. So, you know, a very distressed lesbian girl who was, um, you know, really didn't fit in well, had a serious eating disorder, nearly died several times, was hospitalized repeatedly, landed on the notion at age 18 that she was really meant to be a boy because she did a search for if it was possible to get your breasts removed for anything other than cancer and found herself on transgender forums. And within a week, she became very convinced that she was actually meant to be a boy. And that was why she was starving herself because she wasn't meant to have these curves. And so she went to a therapist who told her that if she transitioned, her eating disorder would go. 
So she transitioned and by the time she was 21, she had her ovaries and her uterus removed and nobody had told her what a major operation that is. My mother had it one, you know, some good some time ago when her, I think her late forties. And she was My mother had it after ovarian cancer. It's not, it's not, it's not an easy operation. It's not a freaking joke. It's a major, Yeah, and so this 21-year-old was sent off told that she was meant to be feeling great because now, you know, they'd, they shouldn't have taken another step along her, 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 her gender journey. And she felt like shit, absolute shit. So, you know, she believed the doctors. It wasn't words they said to her. It was the whole way it was presented. This will make you feel better. This is a journey. This is the right thing for you. This is the sort of person you are. These kids are being grotesquely missold and misled. I'm so angry with the people who have done this and who do it. I mean, I don't know what, I, I don't know how they sleep at night. I don't, I, I've seen pictures of some of these awful surgeons you know, on TikTok, advertising on TikTok and on Instagram and doing things like, I'm not making this up, holding up buckets of removed breast material. There's a woman who, who says, you know, I'm off to yeet the teats. Yeeting the teats is what she calls chopping off teenage girls' breasts. These people are not, they're not right in the head, but particularly they have a very strange and weird attitude to our bodies that a feminist here in the UK called Mary Harrington, I've heard her call, were meat lego. You can take bits off and put other bits on. You know, this is profound, profound um, denigration of bodies and reification of our mental lives as something that's separate from our bodies. You know, the, I mean, we're all prone to do this. We're all prone to think that we are this thing behind our eyes. There's a little homunculus in there who's driving the machine. You know, that's a natural uh, mistake for human beings to make because our brains are too big, basically. You know, we're, we're too damn smart. We're so dumb because we're so smart. And, and so you're telling children that that's real, that's real thing there. And you can just change all this stuff, like take the hormones, chop things off, grind your, be- grind your breasts, make, you know, strip off flesh from your arm, make a neophallus. It's all fine. And by the way, if you're going to tell people this sort of stuff, it's essential to force everyone else to go along with it. If you imagine, this, this is a very long arc back to those gender doctors in the 1990s who were looking at a distressed man in front of them and thinking only of that man and what can make him feel better. Well, what made him feel better was if he could present as a woman, but that requires women to go along with it. That man can't live as a woman unless he can use women's facilities, right? That requires the whole of womanhood to collude with the therapeutic lie. Lots of women are happy to, but lots aren't. Lots of women are happy to do it for some trans women, for the trans women they know and trust. They're not okay to do it for random strange male who says he's a woman, but that wasn't thought about. But once you've sold this lie that you can change sex, you must force all of society to accept the lie as well. And that's how we got to this place where it's so super hyper intolerant and aggressive. Because anyone who says, anyone who says, you know, but actually, no, you're not female. Like, I know you had those surgeries or you didn't, but no, you're not female. And no, you can't come in here. They're destroying the whole thing that this person was sold. They were told by the doctors or by the therapists or just by the Internet that this can be done. And now we're the ones in the way. That's why women get so hated upon by these things. Yeah. Because we're like the obstacles to the whole oh, thing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we're, we're at an hour and I don't want to abuse your time. So um, let me ask you, I was going to ask you two more things. Um, um, so number one is, and I don't know when this happened in these other areas. Maybe you do. But what I'm interest, one of the things I'm interested in is how this shift from trying to address material the social mistreatment of people based on their material reality which is what the traditional civil movement civil rights movements were about Mm 
into this idea that what civil rights is about is about everyone's self-identifications being affirmed and recognized by the public. Um, it seems to me that this has, the latter has swept the entire civil rights coalition. So no, you're absolutely right. It still isn't quite acceptable to identify into being black or to identify into being disabled, but those civil rights categories are now thought of in identitarian terms. Yes. And I've seen mad things like the deaf community is an identity and we should be able to deafen our children at birth. I've yeah. seen this about aut- autistic people, that the autistic community is a community of neuroatypicals. And so there should be no interventions at all and no attempts to make people help people become more functional in society. It's just an identity. Do you have any sense of how the whole civil rights coalition got swept up with this identity idea? If not, I'm happy to go past it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I have have a sort of short couple of ideas about it. And one is, you know, you you kind of move on to the next thing. And you know, I'm my God, I am not saying that things are sorted for black people or for women or anything like that. But the big sort of obvious things are done. Right. You know, you've got the vote. Slavery, segregation. Yeah, slavery, segregation, got the vote, et cetera. cetera. So, so, you know, now we're down to the hard grind of trying to make the world better a bit at a time. And that's kind of tedious for, you know, for the the, the, the sort of the glitterati of the the civil rights movement. And then, of course, everybody's a graduate now or loads of people are graduates now. And the sort of people who used to go into civil rights movements would be, you know, working people who were, you know, not wanting to get beaten on the damn streets. Rosa Parks, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, like really, really personal down to earth things. Now we've got this large apparatus of civil rights um, organizations that are intertwined with government, you know, Washington lobby groups and so on. And industry, industry. yeah, yeah. And it's an industry that has to sustain itself. I mean, I said something today about this group, the Fawcett Society here in England that is named after Millicent Fawcett. She who said, courage calls to courage everywhere as she campaigned for women to get the vote. They're the most pusillanimous group imaginable. They never say a damn word about women's rights. They just talk about women a century ago. I said, what are they for? And the perceptive answer was to pay the salaries of people who work for the Fawcett society so there's this enormous industry of lobbying and these people don't actually much care what they're lobbying for they often right. move from one civil rights organization to another or one charity to they'll do blind people they'll do deaf people they'll do women they'll do black people blah, blah. And, and they're always backslapping and you know patting each other's backs and moving in and out of government so i mean they're 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 they're, they're um yeah they're parasites so i think that's a big part of the reason um did i have another part of that yeah, just that there's so many graduates now, you know, as well. I mean, graduates like to think of things in a graduate way. Yeah. I mean, an awful lot of this is a graduate job creation scheme, a huge amount of it, all the equality, diversity, and inclusion stuff, all the HR, yeah. who goes into these things, people with degrees in media studies, gender studies, sociology, whatever. They go in and nobody's paying them to say, do you know what, this organization's not bad. And actually the best thing that we could do is, you know, try and get in some working class kids for um, paid internships. No, they're, they, they're in there to make work for themselves, you know, to find microaggressions, to offer trainings, you know, whatever. So I think a lot of it is that. Yeah, we created a, an industry that now is kind of self-sustaining. Yeah, self-sustaining. Yeah, yeah. The last thing I wanted to ask you um, is, um, so the book ends with a series of, you know, I call them recommend, let's call them recommendations. Yeah. Or, but I'm, 
actually kind of interested in not your recommendations, but your predictions. In other words, where do I think this is going? Sketch the next five years for me in this territory. God, it's it, it, the thing is, it, it could and I, it's so going to be a guess, ways. but it's an educated yeah. guess. So what do you th- yeah. what do you think is coming? Where is this going? Very different in the US and the UK. Please. Um, I think that you in the US have really painted yourself into a corner here because you've identified this detachment from the material reality of bodies and the reification of identities. You've identified that with the liberal left and the Democrats. And so now, you know, really a large number, a large number of Americans believe that to disbelieve that you have to be, you know, the pay of the Heritage Foundation. I mean, people are always right. saying that to me, you know, an right. atheist woman who isn't yeah, the, American, Oh, you're all liberal. far right and all this sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just completely absurd. They're um, calling lesbian Marxist Marxists yeah. far right. Yeah. I mean, it's just. But so they believe that because, because the country has become so polarized and tribalized and, and, and left-wing politics has gone so all in yeah. on this identities as being what it's all about and I mean, it's not like i hold carry any water for your right wing either i loathe Trump. no they're awful they're, they're, they're even worse they're terrible <laughs> they're even but worse the thing is they feed off each other oh yeah so if you're if you're a, if you're a white ethno-nationalist majoritarian who loves trump and you look at people who are so crazy right that they think that a man can become a woman and so obscenely immoral that they are right. willing to sterilize a gender non-conforming child I'm sorry, you don't think that you're worse than them. You think you're better. No, and, and also you versa. love you you love it because you, it means you're going to win the next election if they push yeah, that yeah, too yeah. hard, right? So I that mean, worries me. I don't think you've got any easy way out. Yeah, of I it. think Trump's going to win again next time. I certainly don't think yeah. that you're going to get out of yeah. this in the next yeah. five years. Yeah. I think if I go a bit further out, I'm afraid that what you might see is a big backlash and that backlash won't be just against trans-identified people. No, it'll, it'll be against, against gay, gay people, people also. Yeah, that's yeah. what I think. Yeah. yeah. Now, what about Here the UK? In the UK, much more hopeful because we're really gaining genuine traction um our laws are better than yours we protected trans people back in the 1990s so there was no sort of movement to you know not do unconscionable things like sack people who want to come in calling themselves you know a different name and wearing right. a dress right so that's been that's literally been illegal here for 25 years uh, so yeah so i think that we might actually start to do and i know you said you didn't want to talk about the recommendations no but, please um, that's fine yeah, so, so, I mean, we skipped past something you said about, you know, was there a way we can steal man all of this? And I, we just, the conversation welled elsewhere. I, I have firmly come to believe that there is no way to steal man the notion that people have some sort of identity that is, is of a different sex than their body. I think the feeling of wishing to be a woman or that you are meant to be a woman is an irreducibly male experience. It's not a common male experience, but it's an only male experience. So Kathleen Stock, as I'm sure you've talked to her about this, but I know I've heard you do it, that she has this idea of, um, you know, a fiction, an immersive fiction that other people play into with you. And, I, you know, that's really interesting to me. I don't think it's something you can base public policy on. And I think Kathleen would agree with that. And I'm interested in public policy. Right. So in public policy terms, male people are male and female people are female. But then we have to think, like, what do we do about people who are unusual or suffering or have special needs? In all sorts of ways, we do that. Right. We have all sorts of special concessions for all sorts of different people. Right. You know, special parking places, you know, free school meals. We've whatever. transformed our physical infrastructure for disabled people. Yes. So right. we have to be able, right. if we started from goodwill, like not any sort of you've actually become a woman. But like, what, you know, what if somebody is so distressed by the fact that they're male? Like, seriously, this can't be nice. This must be awful. Right. They can't make impositions on other people of a sort that other people aren't willing to go along with. 
but they also need to be absolutely into society so if you start from that point of view that you've got unusual people who have unusual needs but are you know fully human and need to be supporters to self-actualize like the rest of us then i think you could probably sort it all in about half an hour (laughs) i mean you'd just be talking about having female sports and open sports lots of third spaces you know so how what well how in the uk so you're more hopeful about the uk yeah why is it that you think that in the uk um you'll get to the point to where the i don't even want to know what to call them the trans activist lobby whatever will be satisfied with anything no i don't think they will i don't think they will affirmation another public affirmation I think they're going to have to actually be defeated. So just and be I defeated do not, electorally. I, yeah. yeah. No, not just electorally. I think they'll actually have to be completely destroyed. And I do not mean trans people. You mean the, I'm I talking mean, about the politics is what I'm yes. talking Yeah. I'm talking about the, you know, the people who for about 15 years managed to get politicians ears and tell them that this is the next civil rights movement, that it was actually like, you know, stopping black people from going into white spaces to keep a male person out of female spaces absolutely stupid analogy but it's one you hear all the time yeah and so those people had politicians ears and now increasingly they don't and i know because i mean i've written editor of the economist i know a good deal of what's happening behind the scenes in politics you know last week i was at the conservative party conference lots and lots and lots of politicians have woken up to what what this is which is the ultimate vote loser there is yeah. nothing that will lose votes from people the only reason it doesn't lose votes now is people don't know about it but when they know about it they hate it so those you don't think are that, gaining that, in numbers. You don't think that'll have a similar impact. In other words, in the U.S., yeah, if Donald Trump wins the next election, you don't think it's going to have that effect here. That I it's think a, you're going that to it's a loser. That it's a loser politically. But I, I, I don't think so because I think that the Democrat Party and your left wing politics are super captured. Yeah. I mean, they're super, super captured by the pharma industry lawyers yeah, and, yeah. you know, a set, a set of things like teachers and sort of, you know, what you might call the graduate make work professionals. I mean, teaching is a, an honorable profession, but, um, you know, thrown, teachers are super woke now. So, yeah, I don't. I don't see a way back really easily from the Democrats. So, I mean, I don't know how it plays out. I mean, you've got all sorts of ridiculous policies that you've unfortunately got yourselves stuck with. Yeah. in america because you went too far before you tried to fix it and now it's not fixable so i think it might be another one of those yeah. it could be that women in america just are never going to have single sex spaces now oh dear helen joyce <laughs> i'm the sorry book, the book is trans. the unblurred version <laughs> the book is trans um and i've been speaking with helen joyce uh british editor of the economist helen thank you so much wonderful book I wish you all the success with it. And I hope to speak with you sometime in the future. Thanks very much, Daniel. Really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. You too.